Hey everybody, I'm sure we saw the news of the passing of Ross Perot and thought that we'd celebrate his legacy with a trip down memory lane to this episode, number 169. Keep listening and look for a new episode next week from Come and Take It. And without further ado, here's the show. This is the opening to the best Chuck Norris movie ever. <laughs> <laughs> Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elpstrom. Though he's best known for his impressive third-party candidate run for president in the 1990s, he was also an amazing businessman both before and after. A man who refuses to accept the status quo? Today we're talking about Texan. H. Ross Perot. But first, what's your favorite building in Texas uh, 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 constructed before 1900? Well, I'll throw it out. It's a great episode. Uh, go back and listen to episode 55 where we talked about Jefferson, Texas, Queen of the Bayou. Um, there's a wonderful hotel, the Jefferson Hotel, originally built in 1851. Uh, and supposedly, they have gaga ghosts <laughs> As all uh, good historic hotels, a good historic hotel should have at least one go go ghost. Well, I am going to choose in that time frame my favorite building as going to be the dance pavilion at the Garden Varian in Galveston, which was built in 1880. Um, I was first introduced to this building for my grandparents' 50th wedding anniversary, and then we later used it for my own wedding reception. It's just a, a lovely place to uh, gather and have a party. Wonderful I was there. octagonal wooden building. Yes, you were both there. I was there too! Whee! So, if you haven't, check out the Garden Varian in Galveston, Texas. Very pretty place. Yep. Well, I think there's only one answer that's really correct, and that's the Alamo. Yep, I remember that place. I've been there once or twice. Remember it! <laughs> remember the wall? And you can learn more about the Alamo in the wonderful episode we did on Viva Max. Yes. That is a good one. Or you could watch John Wayne's The Alamo. That was another episode we did. Or I believe we did actually have an episode where we discovered what happened at The Alamo. Or the David Crockett. Yeah, we've talked a little bit about The Alamo. It's kind of important to Texas history. It's It's kind of a central story that we maybe retread once or twice. (laughs) Indeed. Maybe we might have even talked about it in that Santa Ana episode. Although the parody of the man has become more famous than Ross Perot himself, he's an impressive figure. From his early days as a salesman for IBM to his outsider presidential run that drew in a record number of voters and beyond, Perot has always been a man who has believed in himself and challenged the establishment if he felt it was wrong. Henry Ross Perot was born on June 27, 1930 in Texarkana to Lula May and Gabriel Ross Perot. He came by his business acumen honestly as his father was a commodities broker specializing in cotton. His family line on his father's side can be traced back to a French-Canadian immigrant to Louisiana in the 1740s. Perot's childhood was unremarkable, but his drive was already evident before he was a teenager. He joined the Boy Scouts and made the rank of Eagle Scout in 1942, just 13 months after starting. 
After graduating from high school, Perot went to Texarkana Junior College from 1947 to 1949, then went on to the U.S. Naval Academy. Perot's sense of fair play was evident there as well, and he helped establish the Academy's honor system. According to Perot, the telegram telling him of his appointment to the Academy came from none other than W. Lee Papio Daniel, who had been Texas' 34th governor and who was at the time a senator. Uh, he was also the subject of one of our previous episodes. Check it out. Perot married Margot Birmingham in 1956 and remained in the Navy until 1957. Upon leaving the service, Perot became a salesman for IBM. It was not long before Perot was a top employee, and in one year while working at IBM, he managed to fulfill his yearly sales quota in just two weeks. He'd become dissatisfied with his job as supervisors largely ignored his suggestions for improving the company, and they would not give him any more computers to sell after he hit his annual quota by March. He left IBM in 1962 and formed Electronic Data Systems, or EDS to those in the know, in Dallas, Texas. Perot approached numerous companies with data processing services he, that he could provide, but he was turned down 77 times before getting his first contract. And remember, IBM was the big player in the computing game at the time. Things quickly picked up for EDS, and with their biggest set, the biggest success coming when they won contracts from the U.S. government that included computerizing the new Medicare records. Perot took EDS public in 1968, and the stock price skyrocketed tenfold, from $16 a share to $160 a share. The same year, a cover story on Fortune magazine called Perot the, quote, fastest, richest Texan. Uh, things weren't always great for Perot in his EDS days. In 1974, he was called the biggest individual loser ever on the New York Stock Exchange when shares dropped $450 million in value in a single day. Uh, and this was back in 19... 70. However, things picked up in the 1980s, and he eventually sold controlling interest of EDS to General Motors in 1984 for $2.4 billion. That ain't chump change. No. That's some smart Reaganomic dollars. <laughs> now, just before the Iranian Revolution in 1979, the Iranian government had imprisoned two EDS employees because of a contract dispute with the company. Perot personally organized and sponsored the rescue. The rescue team he hired was led by a retired U.S. Army Special Forces colonel. The team was unable to find a way to extract the two prisoners by themselves, and they waited for a mob of pro-Ayatollah revolutionaries to storm the jail and free all 10,000 inmates. They found the two prisoners they were looking for and snuck them out of Iran in a risky border crossing through Turkey. This exciting series of events was recounted by Ken Follett in his best-selling book, on Wings of Eagles. In 1986, the book was made into a movie, and Perot was portrayed by Richard Crenna. Not sure I would have uh, chosen that particular actor, but there you go. <laughs> he was hot. He was just coming off Rambo, man. <laughs> Perot has always been a generous donor, and in 1984, he bought one of the very few early copies of the Magna Carta. He'd lent it to the National Archives in Washington, D.C., where it was displayed along the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution. In 2007, the Perot Foundation sold the document to David Rubenstein, managing director of the Carlyle Group, for a cool $21.3 million. The proceeds from the sale were set aside to provide for medical research, for improving public education, and for assisting wounded soldiers and their families. It remains on display in the National Archives. And I've seen it. And you can, too, if you go to... Yeah, I have, I, 
Oh yeah. Well, I've touched it. Not really. I haven't touched. <laughs> you know, there's a secret <laughs> map on the back, but it doesn't take. I was just anywhere. putting on my topper hat. For <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> well, when Steve Jobs lost his power struggle at Apple and left to found Next. Perot acted as his primary investor, providing $20 million. Perot had faith in Jobs and believed that Next was his chance to avoid missing out, as he had when he did not invest in Microsoft when it was starting up back in the 70s. In 1988, he continued to work in technology, and he founded Perot Systems. Now, eventually, Ross Perot Sr. was succeeded as CEO by his son, Ross Perot Jr. In September 2009, Perot Systems was sold to Dell for $3.9 billion. Perot's life and work as a businessman is impressive on its own, but he also became involved in politics. Now, originally, this was when he became uh, heavily influential in the Vietnam POW MIA issue. Uh, Perot believed that hundreds of American servicemen were left behind at the end of America's involvement in Vietnam. Worse, he believed that government officials were covering up investigations into the issue to avoid revealing a government-run drug smuggling operation that was financing a secret war in Laos. Mm, that's kind of a rabbit hole. This is the yeah. opening to the best Chuck Norris movie ever. <laughs> <laughs> so, a lot of speculation there, but... Yeah. Uh, Yes. Well, don't worry, because it gets better, folks. Unsurprisingly, Ross Perot rolled up his sleeves and got involved. He engaged in unauthorized back-channel discussions with the Vietnamese government in the late 1980s, and this action ruined relations between him and uh, the Reagan and Bush administrations. In 1990, Perot had reached an agreement with Vietnam's foreign ministry to become its business agent in the event that diplomatic relations with the United States became normalized. Perot also launched private investigations of and attacks on U.S. Department of Defense official Richard Armitage. His anger over the Vietnam War and the plight of POWs was not only directed at politicians and public officials, though. When he learned that Maya Lin, the architect of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, was of Asian descent, he attacked her, even though Lin was actually born in Ohio and her parents were immigrants from China, not Vietnam. Perot's political disdain was further shown in his in his support of Jack Gargan's, quote, throw the hypocrite rascals out movement. His relations with George H.W. Bush were poor even when Bush began his run for the presidency and Perot didn't support his campaign. He also was a vocal opponent of the Persian Gulf War, and he unsuccessfully urged senators to vote against the war resolution against Saddam Hussein. Eventually, Perot's desire to see things improved went from criticizing the people in power to trying to have a hand at the job himself. On February 20th, 1992, Perot appeared on CNN's Larry King Live and announced that he would run for president as an independent candidate if his supporters could get his name on the ballot in all 50 states. The platform he presented included balancing the budget, opposing gun control, ending job outsourcing, and enacting methods for direct democracy. He presented everything in nice, concise, easy-to-understand charts. <laughs> Big charts. <laughs> you, you can cut that part out. <laughs> Big. His views and campaign were popular enough that he was soon polling roughly even with the two major party candidates. His campaign received more media attention when the primary phase for the two major parties started to wind down. Perot was a natural choice for people who resented establishment politicians. His prominence as a third-party candidate earned him a spot on the cover of Time magazine on May 25th. Months before the major party conventions, Perot filled in the lull in election news as his supporters began the petition drives necessary to get his name on the ballot in every state. 
Perot built on this momentum by employing two skilled campaign managers. Now, in keeping with his trend of ignoring established political structure, he showed no loyalty to the existing parties, choosing Hamilton Jordan, a Democrat, and Ed Rollins, a Republican. Perot was still contemplating running in July, but his supporters started the campaign organization United We Stand America. Perot was late in making formal policy proposals, but when he did, most of them involved reducing the debt by increasing the tax on gasoline and cutting back Social Security. By June, Perot actually led in the Gallup poll of presidential candidates with a 39% rating. But, as history showed, the campaign was not entirely smooth. Only a month later, the Washington Post reported that Perot's campaign managers were becoming disillusioned by his unwillingness to follow their advice to be more specific on the issues. His excessive need to be in control of his campaign was also a major issue with his managers and campaign workers. As an example of his need for control, he forced all volunteers to sign loyalty oaths. Perot's poll numbers began to slip, and his advisors warned that he could fall into single digits if he continued to ignore them. Jordan threatened to quit, and Rollins actually did resign on July 15th. This move happened after Perot fired advertisement specialist Hal Riney, who'd worked with Rollins on the Reagan campaign. As a demonstration of the increasing paranoia in, in his campaign, Rollins later claimed that a member of the campaign accused him of being a Bush plant with ties to the CIA. Okay. Aren't we all plants by the CIA? <laughs> In the midst of all the turmoil, Perot's poll numbers had fallen down to 20%. The next day, July 16th, Perot returned to Larry King Live to announce that he would not seek the presidency after all. His explanation at the time was that he didn't want the House of Representatives to decide the election if the results caused the Electoral College to be split. Eventually, he revealed that the real reason was that he'd received threats that digitally altered photographs would be released by the Bush campaign that would sabotage his daughter's upcoming wedding. Like I said, wow. I say this all the time, the 90s were a weird time. <laughs> I did not remember that. I do not remember that either. I, I, yeah, I remember a little bit of that. Whatever the reason for his withdrawal, Perot had lost a lot of faith of his supporters. Still in September... He actually qualified for the ballot in all 50 states, and it wasn't until the next month on October 1st that he reversed his decision and said, I will re-enter the presidential race. Perot campaigned in 16 states and spent an estimated $12.3 of his own money on his campaign. <laughs> Only $12.3 million. Peanuts to wow. a billionaire. Wow. <laughs> wow. Think the, about that. This is, this is... A, yeah, well, four years ago, we just wrapped up a whole presidential campaign season, and these seem like very quaint numbers. <laughs> Still, not one to follow on traditional campaign tactics. He also bought half-hour blocks of time on major networks for infomercial-type advertisements. These proved to be immensely popular, gaining more viewership than some of the sitcoms at the time. One of the Friday night spots attracted 10.5 million viewers. I remember watching those. Let me show you this chart right here. Tonight on Look at the Chart with Ross Perot. <laughs> well, given his previous interest in the cause, it's unsurprising that he selected a former Vietnam POW, Admiral James Stockdale, as his running mate. Stockdale was the highest-ranking naval officer held as prisoner in North Vietnam. He led aerial attacks from the carrier Ticonderoga during the Gulf of Tonkin incident 
And on his next deployment, while commander of a carrier air wing aboard the USS Oriskany, he was shot down. Stockton was held as prisoner for over seven years and was awarded the Medal of Honor for his service. In the 1970s, he served as the president of the Naval War College. Unfortunately, he didn't have much political experience. Though Perot had once led the polls with 39% just prior to the national debates, his support dipped down to the single digits before the election, only getting about 7 to 9%. Though he didn't win the election, Perot did get an additional 10% jump in the popular vote when people actually turned out to the polls. Uh, this was largely due to his successful appearance in the debates. Though his answers during the debates were often vague, both Democrats and Republicans admitted that the independent Perot actually won the first debate. It was during this debate that he said, quote, Keep in mind our Constitution predates the Industrial Revolution. Our founders did not know about electricity, the train, telephones, radio, television, automobiles, airplanes, rockets, nuclear weapons, satellites, or space exploration. There's a lot they didn't know about. It would be interesting to see what kind of document they draft today. Just keeping it frozen in time won't hack it. Perot's receipt of 18.9% of the popular vote made him the most successful third-party presidential candidate since Theodore Roosevelt in 1912. Despite that success in the popular vote, he won no electoral college votes. Now, other third-party candidates had surpassed him in this regard, and they had had won some electoral college votes. This was mostly because other candidates had strong followings in particular states, like Montana or Idaho. While Perot's support was spread much more evenly throughout the country. Perot actually did finish second in two states, Maine and Utah, and he received the most votes in some counties throughout the country. Detailed analysis of voting demographics revealed that Perot's supporters came from across the political spectrum, with 20% of his votes coming from liberals, 27% coming from conservatives, and 53% coming from moderates. Economically, most of his supporters were middle class, earning between fifteen dollars and $49,000 annually, with another 29% earning more than 50000 He drew voters from both other candidates equally, with 38% of his voters saying they otherwise would have voted for Bush, 38% would have voted for Clinton, and the remainder stating they wouldn't have voted at all if Perot wasn't on the ballot. So he didn't cost Bush the election? No. No. No, but he was certainly an interesting candidate at the time, which is why we're featuring him on this history podcast. Now, Perot was successful enough in 1992 that he was entitled to receive federal funding for his campaign in the 1996 election. He remained in the public eye and active in politics after the election, most vocally opposing the North American Free Trade Agreement. He warned citizens to listen for the, quote, giant sucking sound of jobs going to Mexico. Now, he continued to speak out about the increasing national debt and NAFTA throughout the mid-90s. He even debated that issue with then-Vice President Al Gore on Larry King Live. Perot's viability as a potential future presidential candidate was only harmed by his behavior throughout this debate. Many people mocked him, particularly with his repeated requests, famously, Can I finish? Can I finish? Let me finish. Let me finish. Let me finish. Yeah. That's the sounding call for Ross Perot. Now, his actions backfired in another way since, after the debate, support for NAFTA actually rose from 34 to 57 percent. Sounds like Al Gore did a good job of explaining an inconvenient truth. (laughs) 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 Mic drop. (laughs) Perot was not finished yet with his political career, and in 1995, he formed the Reform Party. 
Unsurprisingly, he won their nomination for president for the 1996 election. This time, he chose Pat Choate, a fellow Texan and economist, as his running mate. Because of certain laws, the Reform Party was not on the ballot in many states, and he was listed as an independent rather than as an actual Reform Party candidate. Perot won only 8% of the popular vote this time, less than half of what he got in the 1992 election. Still, impressive for a third-party candidate. Perot spent less of his own money in this race, but allowed other people to contribute to the campaign. One of the common explanations for his poorer performance in this election was that he was not allowed to participate in the debates because of the preferences of the Democratic and Republican candidates. A group called Open Debates even filed a lawsuit on Perot's behalf. Perot's detractors later accused him of using the Reform Party as a platform only to promote himself rather than letting it develop into a legitimate political party. Party offices were controlled by operatives of his presidential campaign, and Perot didn't, and Perot didn't endorse wrestler and actor Jesse Ventura in his run for governor of Minnesota in 1998. Now, this is particularly David. Now, this is particularly damaging evidence as Ventura is perhaps the most successful Reform Party politician. Perot was no longer involving himself in politics, but the 2000 credit. Mm. By the time of the 2000 presidential election, Perot was no longer involving himself in politics. He didn't run as a candidate, and he didn't even weigh in on internal Reform Party disputes. Even more proof that he had little need for the party other than his own platform, and only four days before the election, he appeared on Larry King Live to actually endorse George Bush rather than a Reform Party candidate. Perot still generally refuses to answer questions about his own career in politics, or anything political for that matter. In 2005, he did agree to testify before the Texas legislature in support of proposals to expand technology usage for Texas students. This included providing laptops to students as well as making e-books available rather than forcing districts to buy physical textbooks. He also advocated allowing districts to buy the books at the local level rather than forcing them to buy through the state. He also voiced concerns about the lack of progress on the issues that he had championed during his presidential campaigns. Perot would go on to endorse Mitt Romney in both the 2008 and 2012 elections, and he also launched a blog in 2008 that focused on subjects like Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and the U.S. national debt. Ross Perot's fame and fortune have extended beyond politics in his life as a businessman. In 2015, Perot's net worth was estimated at $4.1 billion, which made him the 129th richest person in the U.S., the character Cotton Hill from the animated series King of the Hill is also modeled on H. Ross Perot. Finally, the Dallas Museum of Nature and Science is named after Perot, and in 2011, they named a recently discovered dinosaur after his family. The Pachyrhinosaurus peritorium was a ceratopsid that lived in the late Cretaceous period in North America. Now, That's a mouthful. That is a mouthful. Now, in 2014, the Perot Museum moved from Dallas's Fair Park to a new building uh, in downtown Dallas near, near uh, the American Airlines Center, and it is a fantastic and magnificent uh, museum for all ages. So if you're in Dallas, go check it out. Yeah, so quite a remarkable individual. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's cool that, uh, you know, such a prominent figure um, was born, raised in Texas. You know, I mean, he's very, 
very Texan. He's very and Texan. Still lives here. He still lives still here. Lives here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's he's kind of polarizing in some ways. He was he's a very driven individual. Really interesting. You read it's like he's really driven. He puts together these things. They go great, and then it gets a little paranoid and a little bit control. <laughs> little little yeah. got a little bit of a too tight hold on the stick. Now, one thing we didn't talk about, but I think Sean and I were talking about this before the episode, um, is exactly what, like, how he affected schools in a lot of way in Texas. Yeah. So in 83 and 84, uh, Perot actually partnered with Texas and he, he pushed for a lot of reforms. Now, these included mm-hmm. things like uh, a move to all day kindergarten away from the half day, they, an emphasis on some standardized testing. And in addition to that, and of course, no pass, no play. Now we've talked about this before, so maybe if you're an international person or you're unfamiliar with Texas, oh, we love football. <laughs> we love football yeah. a lot, especially high school football, Friday night lights, and all that. But Ross Perot said, uh, you know, look, if you're if school should be about education, and uh, we need to make it a priority. So if you don't pass, you can't play. And uh, it proved hugely unpopular. Yeah. <laughs> extremely. Extremely. Extremely unpopular. Um, because yeah. you had a lot of really great athletes that uh, just weren't working that hard at their grades. It, it, was, it was so unpopular that people filed a lawsuit that went to the Texas Supreme Court, which ruled that there is no constitutional right for students to play football in the state of texas that it's there's not a guarantee we need to make that clear (laughs) yeah yeah um so yeah this this was all a result of a blue ribbon committee that ross headed uh and that eds did all the data uh processing for as a matter of fact uh for gathering data throughout the schools in the entire state and there's a lot of good things that did come out of this i mean they they just they learned that that there was not a lot of standardization. Uh, the Common Core was it was uh, largely lacking, and this is where really the Common Core in teaching came from in, in Texas. Um, another thing that was that was kind of discovered was that there was a there was a there was a perception that there was a lot of teachers that weren't qualified to be teachers, uh, especially coaches. Um, and so part of the Reform Act was that teachers uh, would have to all take a test. Uh, to show that they should be teachers, um, and 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 after that, through that, they also standardized and and reformed this, the certification process. But this test was in 1987, I believe. I remember when they did that, and uh, we actually got a day off from school so that our parents could take the test because both of my parents were teachers, and there was a lot of sweating going on. And then, and Mike, I know your parents were teachers as well. Well, they were, and it was one of those funny things. They took the test, and they were like, that test was really easy. And it was a very small percentage of people that failed the test. Uh, So it was a very expensive adventure to not – they didn't have a lot of results. And it created some ill will. The other thing that was happening at the time was Mark White, who was the governor at the time, and was taking advice from Perot on this, had promised a raise to teachers. So there was a lot of – you know, in Texas, the teachers is a powerful voting block for governor. At the time, and so we and we've talked a little bit about this um, also in a previous episode, but uh, it, it really kind of turned things. Yeah, and um, <laughs> it's you know we just finished talking about a whole bunch of stuff that he did later, but can we back up a little bit and talk about how great a salesperson you you need to be to make <laughs> a yearly quota in about two yeah. weeks? It's pretty amazing. Uh, it's impressive. 
you know, it's like you always hear the uh, expression of being able to, uh, you know, sell something to somebody who doesn't need it, right? I mean, yeah. that's that's the ultimate expression of salesmanship is to sell something really expensive to somebody who has absolutely no need for that thing. I'm think, not saying that's what he did. I'm just saying he was he was good. He was well, good. You at, think about it. Good 19, at the selling. Yeah, think about it. In 1956, he's selling computers. Yeah, and. This is not like he's going around selling some, some MacBooks or anything, right? Yeah, no, I mean he probably... he's selling he's selling computers that fit into a room. I mean, yeah. they require yeah. a full room for a system. Of course, of course, what we don't have here is what that quota was. Maybe the quota was only one, and he sold <laughs> two. I don't know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So uh, I I actually uh, so EDS is is what I most remember Ross Perot from besides running for president and. Um, you know, EDS was an extremely successful company for many years, and it really was for the Dallas area, especially in the early telecom and uh, technology fields. It was the big one of the big names in the industry. And I actually worked for EDS uh, in two, 1999 and 2000, and there were still some vestiges of of Ross Perot's stamp on the company, even though it had been 15 years since he'd owned the company. I know that uh, just a few years before uh, people were still wearing suits, but they said when, when Mr. Perot was in charge of the company, he, if you were, you were, if he saw you without a jacket uh, and a tie, if you weren't, you can, you could take your jacket off when you sat down at your desk. And that was the only place you could take your jacket off. Uh, everywhere else you had to wear your, your suit coat and you had to wear your tie everywhere. So, and that continued for many, many years, even after he was no longer with the company. There was also a, a lady that, uh, everyone knew in, in the company that was employee number three. And she was still with the company when I was there and, and, uh, you accrued vacation time. It didn't go away every year. And they said that she'd never taken a day off in, uh, uh at that point, probably 30 years with 30, 40 years with the company. So, uh, there, there were still those vestiges of, of Ross Perot in the company. And 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 Pro Systems was a little bit more loose because uh, Ross Jr. was a little bit less uh, rigid than his dad was. But he was still actively involved in Pro Systems, even after he turned over the CEO ship to his son. Well, it's, I mean, like I said, he, he's probably, again, one of those most recognizable Texans to all Americans because of, of his spotlight in politics. But it's like he's been around. Also, you know, it's hard to mentally wrap your head around the immense wealth that he holds because you just went out and bought a Magna Carta. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. I, I will um, add my own little Ross Perot story to our collection here. And uh, I guess the closest I ever actually came to Ross Perot was um, taking a tour of the Meyerson uh, Symphony Hall and um, he was a, a donor to that uh, construction, and there is his seat in the back of the auditorium uh, with his little nameplate on it. And uh, I, I actually sat in his seat, which was pretty cool. I think it actually was raised slightly above the others, if I remember correctly. <laughs> no, actually, I don't know if I actually remember that. I might have made that up. I'm just going to say, like, I mean, the other thing that – you know, with the let me finish and all that stuff, um, you know, it's the the wonderful Dana Carvey from Saturday Night Live at the time, I think. He he yeah. was already a public figure, but once you have Dana Carvey doing you on national television every Saturday night for weeks on end, 
that's when you you know that you are part of the zeitgeist, that you're a cultural icon now and a touchstone. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. And why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two ends. And I am Scotticus. A big Texas shout-out to our good friend James Abendroth for helping us to research and write this episode. You can find him on Twitter at Blackguard Press and find his fiction work at BlackguardPress.com. And you know you love this show. You know you love Texas. You know you love hearing about Texas. So get out there and do your duty. Tell your friends and leave a review on iTunes. And heck, make them leave a review on iTunes because that really helps us out to find listeners just like you. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please visit patreon.com slash texaspodcast where you too can become a come-and-take-a-Texas Ranger. We hope you'll join us next time, and remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway.